You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, May 11th reading of the Pikes Peak Courier. My name is Sophia. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Four Victims Identified in Teller County Plane Crash, written by Brooke Nevins. Commissioners and Mike Sell appeal to Polis to veto ICE bill, written by Pat Hill. Woodland Park resident offers medical care in Turkey, written by Pat Hill. Bills on Colorado Wolf introduction near final push, but Polis opposition raises veto potential, written by Marianne Goodland, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Our first article is entitled, Four Victims Identified in Teller County Plane Crash, written by Brooke Nevins. The Teller County Coroner's Office has identified the four victims of a plane crash near the Teller-Fremont County line. Bruce Claremont, Laurie Avis, and Roger and Catherine Duncan died at the scene of the crash. Coroner Stephen Tomsky confirmed to the Gazette Monday morning. All four victims whose ages were not provided were from Florence, the coroner said. The wreckage was found early Sunday, nearly a day after the plane failed to arrive at its destination, according to a National Transportation Safety Board spokesman. The Federal Aviation Administration and NTSB are investigating the crash. The NTSB told Gazette a small aircraft left the Fremont County Airport around 9.30 a.m. Saturday, bound for Centennial Airport near Denver, but never made it. The plane was reportedly spotted near Phantom Canyon Road by another aircraft at about 8.30 a.m. Sunday. The spokesman said the aircraft, a single-engine pool Cessna, T-41B2 crashed into the mountains southeast of Victor and caught on fire. An NTSB investigator began yesterday documenting the scene, examining the aircraft, requested any air traffic communications, radar data, weather reports, and tried to contact any witnesses, the spokesman said in a written statement. That investigator will also seek the aircraft's maintenance records and the pilot's flight history and medical records, he said. The NTSB does not determine the crash's cause in the early stages of the investigation, he said, and a preliminary report may be released in 10 to 12 business days. Woodland Park resident offers medical care in Turkey, written by Pat Hill. Adventure with a mission, hardship with intrinsic rewards. For Jim Schmid, a trip to Turkey was a response to the earthquake that struck the country February 4. Schmid, a Woodland Park resident, 
was part of a 115-member disaster assistance response team for Samaritan's Purse, a Christian organization. The organization responds to natural disasters and war zones. Currently, Samaritan's Purse has a team in Ukraine. Schmid, a physician assistant in emergency medicine for UC Health, flew with a team in the organization's 757 plane, landing in Adana and on to Antakya, the ancient city of Antioch, in a Turkish helicopter. We got there on the 12th and were told that we had to see patients the next day, he said. We set everything up, all the tents, the equipment. The earthquake destroyed the city, which is in the eastern portion of Turkey, near the border with Syria. The hospital, opened three years earlier, was destroyed, along with two others in the region. We set up our emergency hospital in the parking lot, one of two tent hospitals in that area, said Schmid, whose crew worked in tandem with Turkish medical people. They had more capability, like CT scanners, so they would take neuro complaints, and we took a lot of children. The parking lot hospital had two operating rooms and four ward tents. We were helping people who didn't have anywhere else to go. People coming in with heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, appendicitis, bowel obstruction, gallbladder disease, whatever. They needed care, he said. We tried to be focused because we have a job to do. There were 40 to 50 patients a night. The job to do, including working during another earthquake. Every day, there were aftershocks, he said. There were several injured from the second earthquake that we took care of right away. On a break from working 12-hour shifts, Schmid's team got a first-hand look at the border between Turkey and Syria. We took a ride around town. The destruction was just unbelievable. Huge apartment complexes toppled, pancaked, in that first quake, he said. Every building was affected, with people living in cars. The Turkish government was putting up tents everywhere, he added. Volunteers with Samaritan's Purse for the Turkish operation were from the U.S., Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, Australia, in addition to translators from non-English-speaking countries. Before accepting the organization's offer to help, the Turkish government stipulated that there would be no proselytizing, no handing out Bibles or sharing the gospel. Franklin Graham, president and chief executive officer of Samaritan's Purse, thought it important enough that we go to be a light for those people, Schmidt said. There are other ways to share the gospel verbally, he added. You can take care of them, share a smile, provide care, ask them about their families, and just care for them, he said. That's how you share the love of Jesus, by being an example. They were in desperate need. The organization follows guidelines. We rely on their goodwill and their security, Schmidt said. If they need a functioning hospital, 
we leave a majority of our stuff there. The tents we left can be used for shelter for the survivors. After 36 years in the U.S. Army, Schmidt retired as a medic serving in America's war zones. Along the way, he earned a doctorate in emergency medicine. I can't tell you how many countries I've been to with the military and provided medical care, he said. Yes, I was 10th Special Forces, carried a gun, and went places that were dangerous, but my job was to provide medical care. As a soldier and medic, Schmid did medical outreach to people in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Balkans, and the Sinai in Egypt. I feel that God prepared me for this, he said. In May, Schmidt leaves for Nepal on another medical mission. The next article is entitled Commissioners and Mike Sell Appeal to Polis to Veto ICE Bill, written by Pat Hill. A fast-moving issue targeting Teller County's Intergovernmental Service Agreement with Immigration and Customs Enforcement is on again, off again. At issue is SB 23-1100 that prohibits state and local governments from participation in immigration detention. Sheriff Jason Mikesell is the only law enforcement officer in the state that has a 287G agreement with ICE. The agreement allows Mike Sell to hold persons with active immigration arrest warrants and those ordered detained by ICE. The Senate bill effectively removed Mike Sell's agreement with ICE. After multiple appearances before the state legislature, Teller County commissioners secured an amendment to the bill that would reinstate the terms of the agreement. At the end of April, the Colorado State vetoed Sorry, the Colorado State voted to remove the amendment. There's a false narrative out there that we are killing people in our jails, that we are hunting down people of color, and that's not true, said Commissioner Dan Williams, speaking at the commissioner's meeting April 27. In the attempt to halt the removal of the amendment, the commissioners and Sheriff Mike Sell wrote a letter to Governor Jared Polis requesting that he veto the bill. In the letter, the commissioners argue that the county only holds immigrants already in the system, those who have committed crimes and are wanted by ICE. While in the jail, the immigrants maintain contact with their families, receive legal and medical services, and mental health assessments, the letter states. The commissioner, commissioners argue that if the bill passes, the detainees will be transferred to a large facility in Denver, which is run by the private GEO company. Thus, the prisoners would lose contact with their families. As well, there is no state oversight of the facility with 1,500 beds. The bill prohibits local governments from signing contracts with the federal government. The letter states that 62 of 64 Colorado counties have contracts with federal agencies such as the FBI, Homeland Defense, and Department of Defense, and the Drug Enforcement Agency. The agreement with ICE has been working for 23 years because the jail treats the 
detainees with dignity and respect, the letter states. In other legislative issues, the commissioners are also testifying against a proposed bill that would ban assault weapons. The bill failed again in the legislative session May 1. Of more than 600 people who showed up to testify in April, 80% were against the ban, Stone said. I continued to be frustrated that the legislature would focus on an inanimate object and ignore skyrocketing crime, violent crime, he said. Believe it or not, stolen cars do not steal themselves. Stone railed against legislation that punishes criminals according to the market value of the stolen car. The penalties are less for stealing a cheap car, Stone said. They've done this across the board on many crimes. The next article is entitled, Bills on Colorado Wolf Introduction Near Final Push, But Polis's Opposition Raises Veto Potential. Colorado's voter-approved proposition requires wolves to be placed west of the Continental Divide, with designated areas including central mountain counties such as Eagle, Pitkin, Garfield, Gunnison, and Montrose. Written by Marianne Goodland. Two bills designed to help Colorado's plans to reinduce wolves later this year won final votes in the state house after sponsors beat back a series of challenges in the last two days, including from the governor's office. Senate Bill 256 is the more controversial of the two measures. It would require the state to receive what's called a 10-J ruling from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service before wolves can be introduced. The House approved the bill on a 41-22 to 22 vote the no votes all came from House Democrats. The federal rule would allow wolves to be classified as a non-essential experimental population with the state taking the lead role on managing the population. U.S. Fish and Wildlife, which is currently in the rulemaking process, is expected to finalize the 10-J rule by mid-December. Governor Jared Polis has said he wants wolves on the ground by December 31st. Under 10J, and with wolves listed as a non-essential experimental population, the state plan would allow for lethal takes, the killing of wolves attacking livestock, for example, as well as other non-lethal management tools. The Polis administration opposes Senate Bill 256, although the governor's office claims it supports the state seeking the 10-J ruling. Without it, the wolf population would be managed by U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but that raises concerns that the agency doesn't have the resources or personnel to do the work. In addition, without the 10-J ruling, wolves would remain an endangered species, which means they could not be killed when they attack livestock and the two years of work by CPW on the wolf management plan would basically go into the trash bin. On April 2, the bill's sponsors won support for stronger language on J-10. The amendment says the commission would not authorize the wolves' release into the designated lands prior to the effective date of the 10-J rule, 
which would deem the population non-essential and experimental rather than an endangered species. You have to have landowner buy-in, whether private landowners or tribal landowners, in order to have successful reintroduction, said co-sponsor Representative Matt Soper, Republican Delta. He noted that every state that has reintroduced wolves have done so with a J-10 rule. SB 256 is in line with Proposition 114, which was approved in 2020, with its majority support from voters along the Front Range. The proposition requires wolves to be placed west of the Continental Divide. Designated areas include Central Mountain counties, such as Eagle, Pitkin, Garfield, Gunnison, and Montrose. Democrats opposed to SB 256 attempted to gut the bill further. One amendment from Representative Tammy Story, Democrat from Evergreen, would have rendered the bill useless, according to co-sponsor Representative Megan Lukens, Democrat Steamboat Springs. Story tried four other amendments that sponsors said would weaken the bill. All lost. SB 256 was initially scheduled for a final vote on Wednesday morning, but that was delayed at the request of the governor's office, sources said. The sponsors, however, who had the votes to pass it, agreed only to a few hours delay. Sponsors have worked in lockstep through the process. Lukens indicated on Wednesday, believing the House amendments will win approval in the Senate. Despite administration claims that the governor supports the state getting that J-10 designation, the reasons for his opposition to SB 256, which seeks the same thing, but with guardrails, is unclear. That position also raises the specter of a gubernatorial veto. The second measure, Senate Bill 255, which sets aside money to pay for livestock killed by wolves, also won support in the House Wednesday on a 63-0 vote. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission on Wednesday gave unanimous approval to the CPW Wolf Management and Restoration Plan. The CPW plan does not give a specific target on the number of wolves to be brought to Colorado and transferred here from either Wyoming, Idaho, or Montana. That's a bit of a problem. An investigation earlier this week by Nine News found that officials from all three states say they have no plans to allow their wolves to be transferred to Colorado. We have not been and are not in conversations about moving wolves to another state. To be clear, we have not talked and are not talking to Colorado about moving wolves. Greg Lemon, a spokesperson from Montana Fish and Wildlife and Parks, told Nine News. Idaho similarly denies there have been any discussions about wolf transfers. Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon told Nine News his state is opposed to sending wolves to Colorado. The next article is entitled District Kitchen and Saloon to Provide New Option for Eating, Drinking, written by 
Sonia Oliver. The city of Cripple Creek may soon see a new eatery, the District Kitchen and Saloon, located at 367 East Bennett Avenue. Now that the hurdles of liquor licensing approval and a public hearing have been scaled by proprietor Jeff Hellner. Following the city's public hearing, held May 3, the application will be submitted to the State Liquor Division for their review and approval. This process could take up to 90 days to complete. The Council, acting as local licensing authority, conducted the hearing and based their decision upon Hellner's submission of a petition containing the signatures of 16 residents, business owners, and business managers, all in favor of granting the license. Public comment during the hearing was positive and welcoming to another food and drink option for the city's residents and visitors. The district kitchen and saloon is looking at a possible mid-June opening upon subsequent approval by the state of Colorado, passage of final inspections, and approval of certificate of occupancy. The brief moment of respite from a dry weather conditions has not allowed for open burning on public and private land, and Teller County is once again under a red flag warning. Residents are asked to take caution with open flames at the risk of wildfire remains. The fire department will continue to monitor conditions and make further recommendations as circumstances evolve. Ordinances for Marijuana Businesses Last November, the citizens of Cripple Creek voted to approve ballot issue 2B, allowing the sale of medical and recreational marijuana. The City Council must now get into the details of enacting ordinances to tax, license, and regulate the businesses. On May 3, the Council entered into lengthy discussions with staff and City Attorney Aaron Smith, establishing regulations governing the sale of marijuana, taxation and fees, and to permit and license regulated marijuana businesses. The allowance is limited to only two licensed businesses for each type of license, one for medical and one for retail. According to the ordinance, licensed medical marijuana stores and retail marijuana stores may only be open as a dual operations, as dual operations, yet operated within the same location. The ordinance states, neither a medical marijuana store nor a retail marijuana store may operate as a standalone mar medical marijuana store and the location of a dual medical marijuana store and retail marijuana store shall maintain separate licensed premises, including entrances and exits, inventory, point of sale operations, and record keeping. In addition, the council is working to establish a fee schedule pertaining to the application, operation, renewal, etc., of the marijuana application process. According to Smith, research has been completed with data taken from surrounding cities, specifically Alma, Colorado, as a template to determine a fair set of fees. Sales will be allowed only to persons 21 years of age or older, and signage must clearly convey that persons under the age of 21 years may not enter. 
The dual business license allows for the sharing of the same entrances and exits to be shared premises with the retail marijuana store and medical and retail marijuana to be separately displayed on the same floor. Record keeping for the dual operation must allow the city to clearly distinguish the inventories and business transactions of medical marijuana and medical marijuana infused products from the retail marijuana and retail marijuana products. Thank you for joining us for the Pikes Peak Courier. My name is Sophia. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.